0: Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Today I'm speaking with Chelsea Daniel, an AMI Montessori guide and certified yoga instructor living in Brooklyn, New York. Chelsea is the founder of Chickadee Yoga, where she teaches children's yoga, prenatal yoga, and postnatal and baby and me yoga classes. Chelsea and I met in 2015 when we worked at a Montessori school in Manhattan together. In this conversation, we discuss the intersection of mindfulness and Montessori, how to use mindfulness to support children, and how we as adults can use mindfulness practices to be our best selves when caring for children. It was a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll learn a lot from Chelsea, whether or not you are a parent or teacher yourself. A few notes about our conversation. You'll hear us talk about AMI, which stands for Association Montessori Internationale, the organization which conducted our teacher training program that was founded by Maria Montessori and her son Mario in 1929. You'll also hear us talk about a primary class, which is another term for the children's house, a mixed-age class of two-and-a-half to six-year-olds in a Montessori school. We sometimes use the word guide instead of teacher, which is a commonly used term in the Montessori world coming from the idea that the adult's role is to guide children through activities in the classroom and in their development. And lastly, Chelsea and I recorded this conversation in person in lovely Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn. Because we were outside, you'll hear some background noises toward the end of the episode, including a siren, the breeze blowing through the trees, and a passing conversation. I hope those sounds won't be too distracting, but rather that they will help you imagine you're sitting on our picnic blanket with us on a lovely late summer evening in Brooklyn. So, with that said, here's my conversation with Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori Podcast. Um, Let's start out by uh, telling everyone who you are and what
1: you do. I'm Chelsea, Chelsea Daniel, and I am an AMI Primary Montessori teacher, trained in Primary Montessori, and I'm also a yoga instructor, so I am a 200-hour yoga teacher-trained and in India and then I'm also a children's yoga instructor as well as prenatal and postnatal yoga. So I kind of do a lot of everything it seems. Wow okay so we're gonna
0: get into all of that Um, but let's start out with Montessori. So tell me about how you first found Montessori, what drew you to Montessori, and yeah your Montessori journey.
1: Yeah so I came across Montessori in college in my educational philosophy class Um, i went to emory university in atlanta and yeah we just started talking about different educational philosophies like montessori and reggio and for some reason montessori really called to me and then coincidentally one of my best friends in high school her mother owns montessori school and so and has been a montessori teacher for now like over 30 years i think Um, and she asked me to assist in her Montessori classroom for primary children primary age children uh, while I was still in college so I did that um, when I had time I would substitute I also worked in the afternoons and then in the summers as well and I took over summer camp and then yeah I started doing that after I graduated college full-time and I didn't really know what I wanted to do for my full-time job so was kind of just ebbing and flowing between this these different ideas and then I decided to go to training she really encouraged me to do my AMI primary primary Montessori training and yeah that's how I came to it So did you go right from undergrad into AMI training? No, I went from, when I graduated from undergrad, I took a year off, and I was just working in the primary Montessori classroom for that Mm -hmm. year. So I really got to know kind of the ins and outs of what a primary classroom looks like, how it functions. Um, I got to deal with parents and also do uh, different, you know, classroom management, learning styles and positive classroom management. Things. So it was really, really a good experience. So educational. Yeah. And it informed my practice for teaching later on as well when I was a lead guide.
0: Yeah. Um, and so tell me about your journey to becoming a yoga instructor and especially about
1: your training in India. Yeah. So after my first year of teaching in Manhattan in a Montessori school in a primary classroom, I had the summer off and I decided, you know, I love yoga, I've been teaching yoga for, or not teaching, but taking yoga classes and having my own personal practice for almost five years. I really want to deepen my practice, so I just started scouring the internet for trainings and doing research, and I found a training in India, I thought, why not? It's an experience, I can go to Rishikesh, which is like the birthplace of yoga. And so I did it, and it was two months in the summer, and it was amazing. It was great. <laughs> wow, two months. So how many hours a day was that? Um, it was six days a week, and it was all day. So it started, I think, around six a.m. and ended at like six p.m. Wow. Yeah.
0: And when you did that training, did you already have in mind that you wanted to do yoga with children, or did that come later?
1: No, that came later, actually. I knew at the time that I would incorporate some of the skills that I learned in my yoga training in my classroom, my Montessori classroom, but I didn't know specifically that I wanted to be trained in children's yoga, which is quite different than Mm -hmm. adult yoga. Um, So I didn't know that yet but it kind of evolved
0: (laughs) over time. So tell me more about that, how uh, children's yoga differs from adult yoga.
1: Yeah, so when you think about just humans in general and how we age over time, the body changes so much. So just anatomy-wise, you have to kind of modify poses and do things differently, be aware of the age group that you're teaching. Um, For instance, with little children, especially like the primary age from three to six, their heads are usually larger than the rest of their bodies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe you've noticed. Uh, so you just have to keep in mind things like that. Um, they say like no inversions for mm. children of that age because their spine is really still developing and all the bones are still fusing and things like that. So there's just like little nuances that are different. Um, classes are usually shorter. Like an adult class is usually an hour or more. But with smaller children, you know, you've got to grab their interest, their attention span is much shorter, so you have to keep them engaged at a time that it's appropriate for them. So, in children's
0: yoga training, in addition to talking about like the anatomy and the poses, how do they talk about using mindfulness with children?
1: Yeah, it's a huge, huge part of it. Uh, basically, so for, for one example, just even introducing the class to the children when they first come in. So you know how in an adult class you sit on your mat, you might do a little breathing, closing your eyes. We do something similar um, just to get them to kind of check in with their bodies. And we call it a time in. So they Mm. come in, um, we have a little discussion, see how they're doing. And then we do a breath practice. So similar to how adults in yoga do breath practices to get in more mindful spaces. Uh, We do that with children, but we kind of make it more imaginative. So for example, we would do something called, one example is sunshine arms ocean breath. So you would just breathe in, your arms come up above your head and come to a prayer and then exhale like an ocean and your prayer hands come down to your heart. So it's just kind of a way for them to arrive in the space, you know, transition from the external to the internal. So that's just one way that they incorporate mindfulness. Lots of breathing. Mm. And lots of discussion about feelings and how you're feeling, how do you know what you're feeling. So that's another big difference, I think, with adult yoga and children's yoga is that you're having more conversation Mm. with the children, especially at the beginning of the class and throughout. So there's more communication. Um, than in an adult class.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, And so how did you bring yoga into your primary classroom?
1: Yeah, I brought yoga into my classroom through breath work, um, you know, when we would have circle time or whatever you want to call it, group time after the work cycle, the three hour work cycle. Um, Then I would have them all sit down. We would do a breath practice similar to that. Maybe I would do that or the candle breath, which I could explain, blowing out the candles. Uh, And that would just kind of bring them once again, like that time in, bringing them from whatever they were just doing into the present moment. So kind of just centering them, finding their body in space. Um, Other tools as well, just getting them more mindful, you know, on the playground, uh, if someone wanted to do yoga, we would go to a, f- a spot and find a good spot to do some yoga poses or some breathing. Sometimes they would ask for it. So those are different ways. And also I'd have classified cards of yoga oh, poses. Yeah. yeah, and like a yoga mat, and they could take it out anytime they wanted to. Um, and once they were reading, they could read the pose names and match them. Oh, that's great.
0: Did you ever use any mindfulness techniques in um, conflict mediation between children?
1: Yeah, yeah, so the, the main conflict mediation tool I think that I used, which I'm sure a lot of Montessorians will know, the peace rose and how there's this fake rose Maybe it can be real in your classroom. In my classroom, it was fake. Um, And they knew to go get it and anytime there's conflict. Or if they're younger and they didn't quite know, we would encourage them to get the peace rose, get out a little mat, and they would sit on either side, whoever was having the conflict. And I would just be there to kind of mediate and basically talk through their feelings. So maybe we would go through a breath work before we started talking to kind of like calm and defuse the situation. And then whoever's holding the peace rose gets to talk first. And the other child has to wait patiently to talk until they get to hold the rose. And so you each hear each other's point of view. And what I found was by the end of, you know, doing that breath work and each having their own time to talk, they would be over it. (laughs) And they would be moved on. And they would go off and go choose more lessons together or, you know, do whatever they were doing before.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, So that, you mentioned, is a common... Uh, something that you might find in a Montessori classroom. Yeah. What other parallels have you found between Montessori and mindfulness?
1: Oh, there's, there's quite a few. Um, just taking it off the children a little bit and looking at the guide, um, I think that just having a practice of observation in the classroom is is very in tune and in line with mindfulness because. You really have to take yourself out of it and take yourself out of the, the external and your expectations and what you think the children should be doing, all these, these chattering things going on in your mind and just center yourself in the present moment on what the child is doing as you're observing and take your, your expectations out of it and just see scientifically like what are they doing in this moment and mm. not passing any judgment on it. And I think that's, that's mindfulness, right? Like observing something with a neutral lens and not passing judgment and just finding the beauty in that, whatever they're doing. I think that is 100% mindfulness on the guys' part. So much about, um,
0: so much of what we talk about in teacher training is the preparation of the adult and I imagine mindfulness and yoga and breathing practices, also play into that a lot I remember when I the first year that I was a lead teacher I set the goal of like going into my classroom and meditating every morning and I think I did it for maybe a week or two (laughs) I didn't make it very long but you know that was always in the back of my mind as something that would be good to do
1: (laughs) no it's 100% true I mean it is always hard to stick to goals like that but I think you know I was always told from my trainer as well like just um, leave your baggage, hang it up at the door before you walk into the classroom, you know. And I think that, in a way, is mindfulness because leave whatever's in the past and be in the present with the children. That's the best thing that you can do for the children and for yourself as a guide. And mm. I think that that is, yeah, it's mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. goal to meditate every morning. I, I had that goal, too, in my classroom. <laughs> I would come in and maybe do, like... A little bit of breathing, some yoga poses, but not a, not every morning. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I didn't, I didn't make it too far with that goal. But um, well, we sort of already touched on this. But what do you think is uh, has been most challenging for you about practicing mindfulness, both
1: just in your life in general and then in your life as a teacher? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. I, I think the mindfulness is always to some extent challenging especially as a teacher because there are so many outside pressures so many external pressures of academics like how can I best serve this child how can I best serve the parents how can we serve the child together and be on the same page and how can I get this child what they need and uh, all these external services that they might need and so there is a lot of pressure and there's so much chatter that can build up in the mind when you're with the child, that it can be hard to really center yourself and be there with the individual child. So I think that is the hardest thing, or it has been the hardest thing in my practice as a guide has been you know, really focusing on just leaving all those external pressures when I'm with the child. And you can come back to them once they go home and think about what your next strategy is going to be, how you can connect to the parent how you can get this child extra services, whatever it might be, but when you're with the child, just really being there, and I think that takes a lot of practice and a lot of um, mental perseverance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, since this is a podcast about language, mm-hmm. um, tell me about. Well, we talked a little bit about you know the sunshine arms and ocean breath and the peace rose, but what are other ways that you use language with children to help them be mindful or to help yourself be mindful?
2: Mm,
1: I love that question. That's great. Yeah, I think language is, as we know in Montessori, it's so, so important for the young child, the young child's developing mind, and just the specificity of our language, right? So naming feelings. Like, I remember I had this one child who would come in every morning, very upset throughout the whole year even, come to find out there were external factors going on elsewhere and the home, but they would come in every morning very upset, also a very shy child, did not want to speak that much, but I noticed if I asked this child a question, hey, do you want to go sit over by the record player and choose a record? I had a record player in my classroom. Choose a record, listen to some music, and then maybe you'll want to talk to me about it afterwards. They would always say, yes, I want to go do that. So they'd go and calm down, cool off. And then I would come back and ask, you know, how are you feeling? How is your body feeling? Is your body feeling, like, slow today, like it's moving through honey? Or is it feeling really fast, like you're a bee buzzing around? You know, just giving them these examples because often you can ask, how are you feeling? A child might say happy, sad, um, but they don't know the nuanced feelings, so just always giving them that vocabulary, I think, is really Mm. good as well, and giving them choices, too. Yeah, yeah, I love that. When
0: you were saying that, it reminded me of a set of cards we had in my classroom of faces, Mm, like, not illustrations, but photos of children's faces, and then putting them with a name for the feeling, because there isn't just happy, sad,
1: angry, there's, you know, so so many 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 feelings. And they can all be... You can have different feelings at once, right? You can be sad and mad and <laughs> yeah. different, all these things. So I think that is so important in a primary classroom and a toddler classroom as well because they're still learning how to communicate their feelings. And yeah, and how to interpret others' feelings. Exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, so
0: what are some mindfulness techniques that parents could use at home with their children?
1: Mm, yeah, some mindful te- uh, techniques. I think... For sure, breathing is great. So what you can do if your child is upset or, you know, maybe sad or angry, I would say try to give them some space at first to feel their feelings, acknowledge what they're feeling. You know, I see that you're having a lot of feelings. And then say, I would like to do some breathing with you when you're ready. And maybe I would introduce this breathing with them, whatever breathing technique you'd like to do, at a neutral moment, so say Mm -hmm. before they're upset, right? That's what we do in the classroom with grace and courtesies, so that they're prepared in the moment, and they have this tool in their toolbox to say, oh yeah, I'm already familiar with that, it's not new, Um, it's comforting to me, so... Mm -hmm. For instance, you can role play uh, in a neutral fun moment, just be like, let's do some breath work right now. Let's do Sunshine Arms Ocean Breath. I'm going to show you how to do it and then you can do it with me. Let's do it three times. You know, something really doable. Uh, If they don't want to do it three times and they want to do it two times, that's totally fine. Just make it fun. And that way, next time they're upset, you can say, let's do Sunshine Arms Ocean Breath when you're feeling ready to do so. I think that is a really nice tool for them. The breath is so important to calm their nervous system. So I think introducing that at a young age is so invaluable.
0: Yeah, because that's really like
1: arming them with the tools to self-regulate, even when they're not at home, when they're out in the world. Yeah, and I've seen children in my own classrooms whose parents have taught them. I had a yoga teacher parent in one of my classrooms and her child would come to school, and if she was upset, she would start doing breathing <laughs> exercises. And I was like, "Okay, yep, and she's That's been great. taught, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah." And she would calm down. You know, it, it obviously it takes some time. Like, it's not going to work for every child. Every child's different, um, but it does physically in the body calm the nervous mm-hmm. system. So yeah. it's just a part of our physiology, our anatomy. So yeah. it does calm the heartbeat, calm the nerves. And
0: also that's, you know, good to keep in mind for adults as well. When we try to (laughs) calm down a a child who is at heightened emotions, it's also important to calm ourselves first and make sure that we're not, right, we're not engaging in their... Yes. state of heightened emotions and that we're Absolutely. we've kind of like regulated our emotions first that's yeah. always really difficult
1: yeah and having that self-awareness to say okay my nervous system is heightened right now uh, I need to bring it down and if I can't bring it down so I can approach this child in a way that they need me to then I'm going to ask my co-worker to come help me and mm-hmm. switching off because yeah it's, it, there's nothing worse than going into a situation with a child where your, your nervous system is heightened, there's <laughs> is heightened. just everyone's is going out of control. Right. And it's like not coming down. Yeah. So just having that self-awareness is super key. Yeah. And mindfulness helps with that as well. Yeah.
0: Um, let's see. So changing the subject a little bit, since we talk a lot about bilingualism and multilingualism, um, Have you ever had a child who was learning English in your classroom? And what do you remember about that experience?
1: I do. Yeah, I've had a few children who are learning English. Um, One, for instance, I think was trilingual. uh, And she was very young when she came to my classroom, maybe just turned three. But she was very curious you know, this age, they're so curious, they want to know more, 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 that absorbent mind, um, constantly listening and absorbing everything around her, so I found that she learned English, English quite quickly in the classroom, because all of her peers spoke English to her, we spoke English with her, um, and we did lots of, you know, sandpaper letters, sound games before we did the sandpaper letters, lots of classified cards to give her that vocabulary, Um, of, you know, things like things in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. et cetera, Um, just what we would think are basic things, but for a child of that young age, it's so, so necessary for them to learn that, and especially a child whose um, first language is not English, so yeah, I think those tools really helped her, and by, you know, I had her for three years, and by the end of it, she spoke fluent English and really was reading everything, so... Yeah, yeah, it
2: works. Oh, <laughs> the I observant know. Mind. <laughs> Trust the process.
1: It will happen.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so is there anything about yoga or mindfulness or Montessori that we haven't talked about that you want to touch on?
1: I don't think so. We've covered so much. And yeah. I just really think that they go so well together and that it's important to really teach these things at a young age. So if you can teach breathwork. Any, any little breath work to your children, oh, yeah. um, do so at There's a neutral point. Like that. That's the best. Um, any okay. advice for teachers who
0: want to bring yoga into their classroom?
1: Yeah, I, I think, uh, especially for Montessori, we already know this, follow the child, follow their interests, so if you'd like to teach yoga in that way, like follow it. If they're interest, individu- interested in it individually, then have those cards out for them to see the yoga poses. Have a yoga mat available for them. Um, If your classroom as a whole is interested in it, maybe see if your school can get yoga mats and you can do it on the playground or wherever you might have movement space. Um, And you can make it fun, right? It doesn't have to be like an adult class, like warrior two to (laughs) warrior three, you know. Make it an adventure. Incorporate what your children are learning into it. You know, if they're interested in volcanoes, make a whole thing about volcanoes. If they're interested in, I don't know, dogs, just be different dog breeds the whole time. You know, you can do so much within it and just use their sense of play, their imagination to really get them engaged. And I think that they'll love it. It's going to be great.
0: I love that. Well, thank you
1: so much, Chelsea. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Weeks after Chelsea and I recorded that conversation, we were chatting, and Chelsea happened to mention that she had lived in Austria for several years as a young child, where she had learned to speak German fluently. I knew I needed to hear more, and she very graciously agreed to a second interview so I could add her experiences learning a second language as a child into the episode. Well, welcome back to the Multilingual Montessori podcast, Chelsea.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Gabrielle. It's nice to be here again.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to get this part of your experience in this episode as well. Um, so tell me about living in Austria and what you remember about that experience.
2: Yeah, it was great from what I can remember. Of course, I was pretty young. Uh, we moved there when I was, I think, six or maybe five and a half. Um, and I lived there until I was about eight. And so then we, we moved back to America, to Georgia, to be specific. But yeah, I was only there for about two, two and a half years-ish. Um, I did my first and second grade there. And it was so nice. I went to a primary school. That's what it's called in, in Austria. So I lived in, first of all, I'll back up. I lived in Vienna first. When we were like just kind of getting settled with it, which is the capital and it's, you know, the largest city in Austria, still very relatively small, especially compared to New York. <laughs> um, but so, so amazing to be there. But I actually remember much more about Graz, which is the second largest city in Austria. And that's where I attended school. So like I was saying, I was there for first and second grade. And it's a pri- it was a primary school, I think it still exists. I've done some Googling. <laughs> and it was an English speaking slash German speaking school. So they spoke mostly German, um, especially with me, because they wanted me to learn German. Uh, but there was an English teacher there. And so we had English instruction for, I, I'm not really sure how long it was. I imagine it was probably you know, less than an hour, because we were pretty young. But during that time, I was told I couldn't participate, because (laughs) I knew knew all the answers to all the questions. Which, you know, looking back, I remember being a little sad about it. But I think that it was, you know, good for the other children. Because I don't know if you've ever had this situation in another country where, especially in Europe, they just want a lot of people want to speak English with you. So you don't get to practice your your language that you want to speak with those people so I think it was actually looking back really great because I absorbed so much German all around me my like you know Montessori the absorbent mind is just during I was right at the tail end kind of like six six and a half but it was still there
0: yeah you got it just in time
2: (laughs) exactly my brain was just a sponge even my parents would say like it's so much easier for you. Like they would have me translate things for them. It was so much easier for me uh, than my brother to learn German. He's four years older than me. So it took him a little bit, you know, a little bit longer. And I think also my age as well, I wasn't as scared or timid about meeting people and friends. And so I would just go into a situation and yeah, just learn everything So yeah, I learned a lot of German. I was fluent uh, for a while. And then we moved back. And um, I started forgetting a lot, at least in my daily life, because I wasn't using it. You know, if you don't use it, you tend to lose it. Not forever, though. I'll talk about that in a minute. Because I do think that it's always in your brain. It just takes, it's like a muscle. It needs to be exercised. Yeah. Um, Learning another language, you have to use it um, often or else you just, it goes away for a moment, but it's still always there. So then moving on, I didn't take German again in school until it was offered in high school. And then I took it as well in college. So I realized as soon as I took my first Um, German course in high school, that it was still there. I was like, oh, I know all these vocabulary words. I know how to conjugate these verbs. Like this is very um, intuitive in a way. So it just came flooding back and it was incredible to feel that it was still there.
0: Yeah. Um, And I imagine your accent is great as well. Like, have you been told that by teachers?
2: Yes, I have in the past. I don't know if it is right now because I haven't used my German consistently, my German skills consistently since college, unfortunately. So now, if I were to speak German, it probably wouldn't sound that great in terms of my accent. But yes, in the past, especially in college, I was told, you know, you you pronounce things with ease. And, yeah, I, I of course, like there's different dialects in different regions. and so you know, there's different accents from. Vienna versus you know someplace in Germany so that's also uh, something to consider yeah. But I learned a very different type of way of speaking as opposed to like a way someone in Germany might in a different region.
0: Yeah uh, so have you traveled to Austria or another German-speaking area as an adult?
2: Well in Was college yes yeah yeah yeah. in college I went back to Vienna to study abroad for I think it was a summer, so maybe two and a half months, something like this, um, and it was amazing. So I, I was at the university there taking classes. I think just like a German language class, and I took a music class as well, like a history of um, classical music in Austria, because there's a lot of famous composers who come out of Vienna in particular, but Austria like Mozart, Beethoven, um, Schubert, the list just kind of goes on. So I studied music as well there. And it was amazing because Vienna is like the cultural capital, honestly, of Europe, if you really want to get down into it. They have wonderful old opera houses and all these beautiful castles. And I live, um, my host parents lived only about a mile, maybe even less from one of the main castles there called Schönbrunn. Um, and so I would walk there and just hang out. And, you know, I got to meet people and use my skills and go grocery shopping and use my skills. So it was very much a a great experience in that I could put these skills to test in actual life situations. Yeah. And so as an adult versus a child, you know, because yeah. when I lived in Austria before it was my parents doing most of the things unless they needed help, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you remember any, any times that you had to navigate a situation in German, like doing those, you know, tasks of daily living?
2: (laughs) Yeah, let me think. That's a good question. Um, I just remember, you know, going to like a farmer's market and not remember, not knowing, I can't even remember what the fruit was at this point in time, but not knowing how to ask for a certain type of fruit which seems like kind of silly because you can just point at it but it was like a little more complicated than that. but you know I think they noticed I was struggling so a lot of people mm-hmm. in Vienna speak English as well they they won't in my experience they won't use it unless you know they they see that you need to but mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah
0: yeah yeah and so do you do you find any ways to incorporate German into your life now, living in New York and not needing to speak it on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think for, well, I incorporate it um, not in spoken language, but in reading. So I read a lot of just like teen dramas <laughs> that are like, I guess would be considered like an intermediate um, German level of reading. Uh, but conversationally, no, I don't. And I have certain friends who actually used to, I think they used to find people on couch surfing in New York city and just be like, Hey, I see that you're German, you're like you're German or you're Austrian. Let's go out and get coffees and things like this. But I don't think I'm as, I'm not that extroverted to be able to do (laughs) that and practice my German, but I think it's a really great idea. And one I've been thinking about doing. Oh,
0: I love it. Yeah, that's a great
2: idea too. I mean, you know, as, as soon as I hear someone speaking German, I have to admit that I do eavesdrop a little bit just to see what I can understand. And I can catch words here and there if people are speaking slower. But, you know, if someone's speaking fast, I would definitely have to ask them to slow down. Yeah. <laughs> but I think with time and with practice, it would come more with more ease for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I think that, I mean, what you were saying about being able to learn it during the absorbent mind, it really probably sticks with you in a way that maybe it doesn't with your brother who is older and with your parents who
2: learned it as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. My parents have pretty much forgotten everything. <laughs> and and my brother is actually, he's, he's definitely more studious than I am. And I think he has a few more German speaking friends. So I think he actually does, Use it a lot more than I do um, in his everyday life. Mm, so, yeah, he still remembers a lot. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's interesting. So then it's that's another that's kind of the opposite of what we were saying. Like it's not not all is lost if you didn't learn a language a second language right. <laughs> during the
2: absorbent mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was ten. He was ten, so still young, but it's not not as it wasn't as easy for him. Yeah, come as intuitively. Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, thank you. That was that was a great addition. I'm so glad we got to add that part in.
2: Yeah, me too.
0: (laughs) Thank you again to Chelsea for joining me for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I'll be incorporating sunshine, arms and ocean breath into my classroom. You can follow Chelsea on Instagram at Chickadee Yoga, and you can follow me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show, or so I hear. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.